Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. And I'm Logan Denning. And after several years, maybe not several years, but a few years of going through world history in chronological order, one movie at a time, we've moved on to kind of a wrap-up, gear-shifting project here in the next phase. Yeah, so this is our most interesting person in history tournament. We have started out with 32, whittled it down to... 16 and 8 and 4, just like March Madness, and this is the last round of our Sweet 16. So we're finishing up here in the uh, in the Modern Times bracket. Yes, yes. And then I was just thinking, I always kind of disagree a little bit with your semantics of things. So so I'm like, well, no, a a round is the round of 32, the round of 16. A matchup is the individual pairing between the two people, and then a region is the, is the quartile, and the bracket is the whole thing. It's all just semantics, but... That's true, yeah. <laughs> no, but you're right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, first round was just kind of more knee-jerk reactions, just kind of just basically based on our memories of kind of each figure and just kind of seeing who we thought would advance. This round, we've been doing full-on biographies that we were hoping initially to keep to, you know, 15 to 20 minutes. Most of them have been <laughs> probably 30 to 60 minutes, but uh, not too bad. Definitely, definitely fun getting a little more in-depth with everybody. And we have also been doing throughout, if we agree, it's simple, we move on. If there is a tie, basically Logan picks somebody, I pick the other person, we go to basically a blind bid, where each round we have a total of 100 points, which, if you've been listening thus far, you know, heading into our final matchup of the round of the Sweet 16 here, I'm down to what, two points? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say, it's, it's put us in an interesting position because... In the first round, the round of 32, we each won one round. Is that correct? Because, yeah, you, you had picked uh, Isabella over Vlad. I picked Isabella over Vlad, and you picked Queen Elizabeth over Wyatt Earp. R.I.P. Wyatt Earp. Yes, I am, again, <laughs> drinking out of my Tell Them I'm Coming and Hell's Coming With Me tombstone Wyatt Earp mug. Uh, and then we also had the tie with Julius Caesar and Ramses the Great that Joe had to oh, break. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we each we each won one, and then we had the tie. Uh, this round, <laughs> you've won every single bid, uh, which is for me a good and a bad thing today because it's a bad thing because none of my picks got through, made it through. But it's a good thing because now today I have one hundred points and you have two two points. <laughs> right. Which and and again for those who've been listening for a long time, we, you kind of know if even going back to like the full on episodes, if you listen to the Lawrence of Arabia episode and then the Gandhi the the you know the film episode, you'll kind of know where our hearts lie here. And Logan is a right. huge G. Lawrence fan, and I'm a huge Gandhi fan, and so. Basically, I have to convince Logan not to make it a tie where he wins the vote. I have to full-on convince him <laughs> that Gandhi is more interesting than T.E. Lawrence and worthy right. of advancement. And I think even if I do successfully convince him, he won't vote that way. <laughs> I did actually go back and listen to our episode 55 on Lawrence of Arabia. And that so that came out in December of 2019. Okay. 
And at that time, we had no no idea what we were doing after history and film was over. We were only halfway through it at that point. True, basically. true. And even in that episode, I say that, oh, T.E. Lawrence, one of the most interesting people in all of history. So <laughs> it's going to be a tough matchup today. <laughs> Which didn't we, in uh, in the hiatus episode for season three, we had a little like mini who was the most interesting person that we covered just in season three. Yeah, it was an impromptu tournament. Yeah, right. And. Didn't T did T E Lawrence win that or did Puyi? I don't remember. No, I'm I'm pretty sure you had said that T E Lawrence was your personal choice, but you kind of conceded that Puyi had the more interesting life, and that kind of does does oh, get into right. the whole idea of, yeah. of criteria though, and how we, we talked about the agency uh, aspect of it, and you know, to, sure. so obviously our, our shades of criteria are also kind of soft. At the end of the day, right? I just kind of keep in mind that most interesting man in the world meme is criteria. Yeah, I've also learned more about both of those, both Puyi and T.E. Lawrence since then, too. Right, like right. Most of that is because of because of the research that we did for this tournament. But, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> okay, so we're going to get into the full biographies today. And the lower seed goes first. So T.E. Lawrence is the four seed here in the medieval region. And Gandhi is the one seed. So Loken will begin with the bio of T.E. Lawrence. All right, T.E. Lawrence. Thomas Edward Lawrence, T.E. stands for, um, (laughs) which I'm not going to refer to him as that ever, but I'm just going to call him Lawrence. T.E. Lawrence was born uh, August 16th, 1888 in Wales. And actually, one of the really interesting things about him right off the bat is kind of his his, uh, family tree and the controversy surrounding it. So his parents' names were Sarah Junior and Sir Thomas Chapman. Chapman actually uh, was not married to Sarah Junior. He was married to someone else. They lived in Ireland, and Sarah Junior was actually Thomas Chapman's mistress. And T.E. Lawrence was born out of wedlock, and Sir Thomas Chapman left his wife and family in Ireland to live with Sarah and raise Lawrence in Wales. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. T.E. Lawrence, the name is T.E. Lawrence. It's not T.E. Junior or T.E. Chapman. Uh, that's because they chose to give Lawrence the last name of Sarah's father, or rather her probable father, uh, because her mother <laughs> was actually a servant for a family called Lawrence that was like a you know minor noble family. And Sarah's mother worked for this Lawrence family at the time that she got pregnant. And so it was like, you know, put two and two together. Big Lawrence, big father Lawrence was probably uh, Sarah's with the help. father, yeah. so they decided to name, give Thomas the last name Lawrence. So that's why his name is T.E. Lawrence. Um, so just right off the bat, just right when he gets his name, he's already leading an interesting life. And also all the time when that kind of thing was a much bigger deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a bigger deal, but also like really common, um, especially in these like noble families. Like, it's is kind of thing happen all the time. True, true. But I mean, that, but but nowadays you would just go ahead and you'd probably just give her, give him mom or dad's name, and not even you wouldn't you wouldn't feel right. like you would, almost like I feel like back then there was this need to separate. Well, yes, he's our kid, sure, but asterisk, <laughs> right? Yeah, kind of like in uh, in Game of Thrones where like the bastards from yes. whatever area all have like the same last name. Yeah, it's like yeah. well, it's like the in. Uh, 
this is getting off track, but in, in Dor, they're, they're all last names Sand. Right. He's like, well, even though, you know, you're Oberyn Martell's uh, daughter, you're you're not actually his, his like, full-on kids. You're bastards, so you get the last name Sand instead. Right. Or, uh, or you know, Ramsey Snow versus Ramsey Bolton. Right, John, but, John Snow, obviously. And then, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though he's a... Ow! <laughs> Whoa, I'm gonna have to cut that. I'm gonna have to cut that. <laughs> no one gives a shit about Game of Thrones anymore, Rich. <laughs> okay, continuing. Uh okay. <laughs> so he grew up in uh the UK, obviously. As a boy, he and one of his friends named Cyril Beeson, they lived uh, near Oxford, and so they would go around that area studying and sketching like old churches and stuff. Um, so he got really into history and like old um, architecture. Uh, in 1906 and 1907, he toured France by bicycle, touring medieval castles and stuff in in France. Um, and he started studying at Jesus College, Oxford, in 1907. In the summer of 1908, he actually biked 2,200 miles through France to the Mediterranean, and then back to study even more castles. So, and this is all stuff that I didn't actually know before, like from our our last episode that we did. Um, I I didn't know that he was like going on these bike tours, like thousands of miles. It's actually really, really cool. Especially because then in 1909, he goes on another tour, this time in Syria. And he, that time is on, it's a walking tour to study Crusader castles in Syria. And his journey was a thousand miles he walked a thousand miles all across syria to study crusader castles um as part of his thesis that he wrote called the influence of the crusades on european military architecture so he didn't to like he didn't do it to disrupt the british salt monopoly no 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 (laughs) nothing like that not yet (laughs) continue (laughs) <laughs> While in his time at Oxford, uh, he was also a member of the uh, Officer Training Corps, so kind of getting some uh, some military training there. Um, after leaving Oxford, he uh, started studying um, Arabic and getting kind of immersed in Arab culture in a uh, city called Byblos, which is in modern-day Lebanon, but at the time it was part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, And an interesting thing about the city of Byblos is that it is one of the oldest places that's been continually, continually occupied or inhabited in the world. It's actually been continuously inhabited since about 5000 BC, but the city was actually founded sometime between... 8,800 and 7,000 BC. Oh, wow. But I just think that's crazy. It's it's like a city that's been that city for 7,000 years. And and it's not one we've heard of, really, because it's still not big enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, like, it's crazy. You know, we think of, like, oh, wow, you know, New York City is really old. It goes all the way back to, like, the 1600s. Right, it used to be New Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right, and then in the UK, they're like, yeah, okay, uh, we have, like, London, and that's been around for, like, even longer than that. And Biblos is like, yeah, uh, I've been Biblos, like, the city continuously inhabited for 7,000 years. (laughs) Biblos is like, we're about as old as as agriculture. (laughs) Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so he started um, studying Arabic, becoming immersed in the Arab culture, um, and then he went to work um, as an archaeologist for the British Museum dig 
in a place called Karkemish, which is, it's a region, it's not like a city, but it's a region that is in modern day kind of between Syria and Turkey. While working there, he developed an affinity for Arab people and culture even further. Um, And actually, this is where he's first introduced to the idea of Arab independence and actually begins to sympathize with their desire to be independent because they were at the time under British control or no Ottoman control. Ottoman control, yeah, yeah. Which this is like, you know, again, one of those cool things. He's like doing an archaeology dig. He's like real life Indiana Jones in the desert. Just, you know. Minus the boulders. Right, yeah. He well, you know, as far as we know. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh no, actually had that happened, T. E. Lawrence definitely would have told people about it. He definitely would have written it in his book. Like <laughs> even even some stuff that didn't happen he was telling people about. So uh, true. uh yeah, he he definitely would have uh would have probably brought that up. Um so around this time, this is the kind of the run up to World War One. This is kind of a side note, but it's necessary to set up the context for for where he's at. Ooh, a necessary side note. We don't have any of those. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, So in the run-up to World War I, we're talking like 1910 to 1914-ish, you have like the Triple Entente, which is like France, the UK. Who else is in the Triple Entente? Oh, Russia. (laughs) How did I forget Russia? So uh, they're kind of uh, starting to ally themselves against Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in order to not be hopelessly outnumbered, Germany kind of sees the need to become friendly with the Ottomans. So the German military starts to give like training and modern weaponry to the Ottoman Empire in exchange the Ottoman Empire is going to give them access to the Middle East and specifically the oil there. And one of the things that was a result of this partnership between the Germans and the Ottomans is the beginning of the construction of the Berlin-Baghdad Railway. So uh, it was a railway that was being constructed to transport oil from the Middle East to Germany. It was going to go all the way from Baghdad to Berlin. It is technically still there although large sections of the railway are just completely unusable so the british are aware of this uh railway being constructed and it's going right through karkamish so right through where lawrence is already you know established doing his archaeological stuff for the british museum so british intelligence approaches him and says hey help us spy on this railway while you're doing your archaeology stuff he was like the perfect person, like perfect person in the perfect place at the perfect time uh, for this to be a success because he his cover is 100% solid because he it's legit. is actually an archaeologist doing archaeology there. Right. And he already speaks Arabic. He already has, you know, cultural and linguistic knowledge of the area. He's the perfect man for the job. Um, and he's really successful in documenting railway schedules and cargo and all this stuff going through this railway. And then another thing that he was doing for the British uh, intelligence service while he was there was conducting military-specific updated surveys of a an area called the Negev Desert. And the reason that it was crucial that they had accurate maps, specifically accurate 
maps that had things like water sources and stuff labeled on them was because in the event that the Ottoman Empire wanted to attack the Suez Canal, they would have to go through the Negev Desert in order to get to Egypt. And as we know, at the time, the Suez Canal was under the control of the British, and it was obviously a very strategically important thing that they defend. So definitely important to have maps of the Negev Desert if you're the British. <laughs> right. Um, so then uh, World War I breaks out. In October of 1914, Lawrence joins the Arab Bureau Intelligence Unit in Cairo, where he is, you know, working for British intelligence and also still advocating for Arab independence at this time. Again, kind of another side note, but a necessary one for context. Um, at this time, there was a guy named Sharif Hussein who wanted British support for a revolt against the Ottomans, and he wanted to he wanted a independent Arab state in return. So basically, he's like, "Hey, help me, help you. We'll fight the Ottomans, and then after you guys win the war, let me have uh, independence." Would this time out about with the beginning of the film then, where you're at now? Roughly. Uh, I think the beginning of the film is actually in 1915 or 1916 because okay. that's when Lawrence actually goes to right. okay. Joss and okay. meets Faisal and Wadi Safra. They had some prelude meetings first in the film, so I didn't know if those were... Right, yeah. So this is in the movie Lawrence of Arabia. We see Prince Faisal. Sharif Hussein is Faisal's father. Okay. So... The, the British are getting this offer for a, an Arab revolt in exchange for independence, but they couldn't just accept it right away because, well, number one, the French didn't like that because they wanted to control Syria after the war was over. They, they were like, ooh, ew, no, uh, Syria can't be its own country. It needs to be a French colony after the war is over. Like, can you imagine Syria, its own country, not part of France? Insane. And also, curiously, uh, the government of India, which India was a British colony, protectorate, whatever, at this time, but the Indian government didn't want Britain to help the Arabs get their own country because they wanted the Arabian Peninsula and Mesopotamia as a granary for India after the war was over. Oh, huh. So France didn't like it, India didn't like it, but Britain was kind of like put between a rock and a hard place because Hussein was in like, all right, guys, look, if you don't help me fight the Ottomans, I'm just going to go tell the Ottomans that I'll help them in exchange for independence, which would have been like disastrous for the British because they were already got their ass kicked in Gallipoli. And so they're trying to like keep the Eastern, you know, the, the Middle Eastern front alive. And so they basically reluctantly agree to help the Arabs revolt for a couple reasons, though. They weren't really concerned about it. One, they didn't think that the revolt was going to succeed. Uh, they kind of didn't really care if it did or not. They were like, well, I guess, you know, worst case scenario, these guys just go keep the Ottomans tied up for a little bit. Um, and even if they all get, like, massively destroyed, it's it doesn't really matter. Like, we don't really care about whether they win or not. Um, and also, behind the scenes, they're working on the Sykes-Pico agreement at this time. Like, it was already in the works, how they were going to carve up the Middle East with Russia and France after the war was over anyway. 
But regardless, uh, they need someone to kind of go be the the eyes and ears for the British in this Arab revolt. So in October of 1916, Lawrence goes to Hejaz and meets with Hussein's sons. And after talking with his three sons, he recommends Faisal as the leader that Britain should throw their support behind in the Arab revolt. At that time, the Arab revolt was kind of struggling against the modern weaponry of the Ottomans. Like I said before, they got it like machine guns, planes, tanks, all that stuff from the Germans. So they were kind of a modern army now. And the Arab revolt is basically like guys with rifles on horses. So they they were really struggling, but British support kind of helped turn that around in the form of training. So using more guerrilla tactics, um, kind of unconventional warfare. But then they also did get like machine guns and, you know, a bunch of rifles and ammunition supplies, stuff like that. Without just spending two hours talking about <laughs> all the different engagements and stuff uh, that Lawrence is involved in over the course of the war, I guess suffice to say he does a great job working at both the strategic and the tactical levels to ensure Arab success. So he's working with the British to get more support for the Arabs. He's conducting strategic planning um, and then also participating personally in raids and attacks um, on numerous occasions. Some of the big highlights were when they crossed the Nefu Desert, which we see in the movie. It's like a couple hundred miles across open desert on camelback to take the city of Aqaba. He fights, yeah, multiple engagements for the rest of the war. One of the things that I think makes Lawrence more interesting to think about as a person is kind of the way that he's conflicted over the Sykes-Picot agreement. So, like I said, it's the agreement that the British, the French, the the Russians are making kind of in secret how they're going to carve up the Middle East after the war is over. But they obviously aren't going to divulge any of that information to the Arabs because they want them to keep revolting and helping. While it's not 100% clear when Lawrence actually did find out about it, he certainly knew about it months before the Arabs learned about it. And it's one of those things where he obviously supports Arab independence. He has this great love of Arab culture and Arab people. But at the same time, he's like, he's a member of the British military. Like he, you know, is loyal to his country, he's loyal to the crown. And he can't, in his own mind, he can't in good conscience divulge that you know basically classified information to the arabs and so i I don't know i just think that that's really interesting i don't know how i would personally handle that and if i were in the same position but it's definitely uh makes him interesting to think about as a historical figure yeah it's kind of the same boat you see with you know the fiction stuff with uh dances with wolves or avatar where he's kind of this outsider who then wants to assimilate with this group he's kind of more fond of but still then conflicted about his ties to you know his uh origins yeah yeah exactly so after the war so after the war ends he attends the paris peace conference um actually as a member of the delegation for faisal this is a a little minor thing but he survives a plane crash in may of 1919 uh, like the pilot and co-pilot were killed, but like he's seriously injured, but lives. Oh, wow. 
He ends up going back to the UK. Uh, he works for Winston Churchill for a little while um, as an advisor on like Middle East policy, but he he hates it. He you know it's a desk job. He doesn't like uh, the bureaucracy. He's not made for for office life. It's something that we, I think we talked about in the episode that we did on Lawrence of Arabia was he was actually for his actions in the war was awarded the I think it's called the Order of Bath by the king, by King George, but he uh, refused because of his base to show solidarity with the Arabs. He refuses this this like military honor, which is like a huge deal, especially being British. Right. Like it's one thing, you know, if like, if you're like as Americans, if the president is like, oh, I want to give you this thing, but like, you know, you don't agree with the president. It's like, you refuse it. Like that's, it's kind of a big, a big deal, but it's not, it doesn't have it's the almost same, expected. like, right, right. It's it's not the same, you know, cultural significance as being a royal subject, and like the king says, "Oh, I'm going to bestow this honor on you." You're like, "No, I'm good. Thanks, but no thanks." <laughs> right, right. To show solidarity with, like, that's that's huge. He was also uh, his support for Syrian independence made the French not like him very much either. So. After his um, office jobs that he didn't like, he goes and he tries to join the Royal Air Force. He he was kind of fascinated with like planes because I mean it's a new thing in 1923. He uh, tries to join the RAF under a false name, but they kind of like figure out who he is because he's like massively famous. Like, hey, this guy that looks exactly like T. E. Lawrence, <laughs> what is joining the RAF? But his his name isn't that. Uh, they look into it. It obviously wasn't very hard to figure out who he was, and he ends up getting kicked out in 1923. So he goes and joins the tank corps, but he doesn't really like it, and ends up getting the RAF to let him back in in 1925. In 1926, he publishes the book Seven Pillars of Wisdom. It's it's like an autobiography, but not really. Like there's a lot of stuff in there that is real, that is true, like actually historically historical fact. But it's honestly more of a literary work than it is. Oh, really? Like a historically 100% accurate book. Like there's there's a lot of embellishments and a lot of T.E. Lawrence historians can point to like a bunch of stuff in there that is like, well, this probably didn't happen or or if it did happen, it didn't happen exactly the way he said it did. But but is it actually classified as nonfiction? I believe so. But yeah, but with a big asterisk for people who know better. <laughs> have you read it? No, I have not. Okay, so it says it's an autobiographical account of T.E. Lawrence while serving in the army, basically fighting with the Arabs against the okay. Ottomans in World so War I. So it is nonfiction, nonfiction, autobiographical, but he's an unreliable narrator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, for sure. And they even deal with that in the film where they kind of have a debate over he's this great hero for the British cause and the Arab, Arab independence versus he's just a shameless self-promoter. And they even have that discussion in, in the film. Right. But and like there's definitely there's definitely like evidence to show that he like, you know, he does embellish certain things, but he also did a bunch of really good stuff like to help the Arabs. It's, you know, 
it was back to like every single person we've talked about where no, you know, right. there's nuance. No one is just one thing. Right. And I, I wrote down here that, yeah, he's he's a self-promoting introvert because he's kind of like someone who like avoided the limelight yet also is publishing these works where he glorified things he did. Similar to when we talked about maybe even like a Chris Kyle in uh, American Sniper where, sure. yeah, he did some crazy things, but he also kind of probably lied about some other things he didn't do. And then John Smith, you know, same same kind of thing. John Smith wrote volumes and volumes about his exploits much of which was just kind of, you know, embellished or invented to make him sound good. Right. But also did some important things with, you know, establishing the Jamestown colony and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So he writes his book and then in, well, so like I said, he was part of the RAF. Um, he ends up getting based in Karachi and Miram Shah for a little while, which um, it's present day Pakistan, but at the time was part of India. Um, and he, he actually got recalled to the UK because of accusations that he was spying on Bolsheviks in India. Uh, and that's probably because he probably was doing that. <laughs> At whose behest, though? If, the, if Britain's calling him back, who is he spying for? No, I, th- I think that I think it was the Indians that were accusing him of the spying. Oh, so gotcha. Like one of those things where it's, eh, you know, better. Right. Back. So Britain's like, how dare you come back here and tell us what you learned? <laughs> right. But yeah, so he he like he probably was doing because like the dude's a the dude's a spy. Like he obviously has a bunch of experience. Like I I didn't look super hard into this, but my own assumption would be that if you have someone who is so you know experienced at espionage, and you have them in an overseas post where again he has cover for being there for the RAF. Like, why would you not? <laughs> why would you not have him it, it, spy? And the only thing would be is he's he's too famous at this point to be a good spy because spies need to be anonymous, although you can also be James Bond and everyone knows sure. who you are. Yeah. But that's fictional. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so he continued serving with the RAF until 1935. Uh, reportedly, he was, like, pretty bummed when he got out of the military. Um, he kind of, you know like a loss of purpose type thing which you can see really from like the end of the war onwards for the rest of his life is like he's just kind of trying to find a place to fit in trying to find something to do that gives him purpose like he he had you know he had that during his childhood you know researching the castles writing his dissertation then doing all the intelligence stuff then obviously during the war during the air revolt he has you know all this purpose and then after it's over, he's just kind of like aimless, trying to find something to give his life meaning after that. He doesn't really ever find it. And then in May of 1935, on, on May 13th, he's in a motorcycle crash, um, and he ends up dying from his injuries six days later, and he's only 40... It's 47. Oh, you're <laughs> using calculator? calculator? To make sure that I was right. <laughs> He's 47 years old. Wait, no, May. I was going to say, he also depends born on... Born in August. He, so... So 46. 46 yeah. Young. He, he died relatively young. Right, right. And Tyson, what I was saying the one time with it was that, you know, even a potential, like, not suicide per se, but a I don't care if I live or die kind of thing. Right, exactly. Not, yeah. not necessarily, yeah, not, not necessarily full-on suicide, but he definitely was, like... Depressed, not, yeah. Just, just not... Uh, not really into doing anything anymore. I'm surprised you didn't just move back to the Arab world and like just try to 
he had connections there. You would think he would just be open to you know be assisting them behind the scenes and yeah. being an administrator in Arabia. I mean, maybe, but at at the same time, I I think that it's like you know maybe his identity as a as a member of the British military, as a member, right. like as being British, you know, he wanted to. That's true. He basically wanted to uh, keep doing something that he liked, but he wanted to definitely still be British. Right. And they, and again, they, that doesn't necessarily be something they'd be open to because if they're trying to establish independence, the last thing they would need, it'd be, it'd be, it would be bad optics to have right. this white guy coming in behind the scenes. And then all of a sudden your political rivals could accuse you of being a puppet of the British and all those kinds of things. So you're right. There's, yeah. He's kind of ended up being a guy who there wasn't a place for in the world, unfortunately, despite right. everything he had done up to that point. I would think that maybe like if, if he was interested in being like a full on revolutionary, he probably could have, but I don't think he was. And I think that, you know, the, the fact that like we talked about with the, you know, keeping the Sykes Pico agreement information to himself kind of showed that like, yes, he had the affinity for the Arabs, but at the same time, he is still loyal to Britain. So I, I, I just don't see, I just don't see him going to basically back to Arabia and saying, all right, well now I'm going to fight like, I'm going to undermine the British interests here. Right. Like he, just because he didn't agree with it doesn't mean that he's going to go actively. Right. Try and he wasn't a traitor. Combat them. Right. Okay. Random side note that ties into what you're talking about him being kind of a secret spy at first when he's working as an archaeologist, kind of even before the war. And mm-hmm. just because I, someone mentioned hearing this story. Now, again, this might be entirely fictional, but I think she said it was actually based on maybe even rumors at the time. But the idea, so we mentioned back in Shakespeare in Love. So this is going with more like the Elizabeth time. But Kit Marlowe, one of Shakespeare's writing rivals, was like killed in a bar fight. And even in Shakespeare in Love, it kind of comes into play because. Will thinks that the other guy had him killed, thinking he was Shakespeare, but turns out he was just kind of killed in a bar fight that they say in the movie he started, and the real Kit Marlowe was kind of killed in a bar fight. Anyway, this theory I was hearing about was like, oh no, he was actually probably assassinated because he might have been a secret spy for like Queen Elizabeth's people and stuff, and she had all this network of spies, and maybe one of them was Kit Marlowe, and that that was actually why he was killed in the bar. Or that could just be kind of a fan fiction thing where they kind of took these things and combined them. But I still thought it was right. interesting, and it even made me think also too of uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Did you ever see that with uh, Sam Rockwell? I don't think so. He plays this game show host who claims in his biography to autobiography to have been a spy for the CIA, and the CIA is like, we don't know what you're talking about, but everyone's like. Or he's like, yeah, of course that's what the CIA would say. And he right. was like, I don't know. And I don't know about the real story, but it is kind of interesting that you could have, you know, these secret spies or spy next door types, uh, you know, and obviously we got Lawrence who was actually a spy, but then other people who have purported to be spies or you could yeah. argue were spies. And I don't know, it is kind of interesting. Uh, and just kind of all throughout history there. Well, it goes to show too that like in real life, you know, your spies aren't, necessarily like a james bond where like his job is to be a spy a lot of time a spy is like the intelligence service will approach this person who's already in that place doing something else and they just get them to do spy stuff for them which makes way more sense than having professional spies right yeah who who then have to infiltrate and convince someone and then that almost is even suspicious from the outset versus someone who is sincerely in a role is by their very nature less suspicious yeah Yeah. I i think a lot of times people think of a spy as being like it's like you're an undercover cop. 
like you just go and you are infiltrating the organization yourself personally as this person with a separate identity, which is not really how it goes down a lot of time. Right. So like if the CIA wanted me to gather intelligence on a former Marine who spent time in Afghanistan, they'd be like, hey, why don't you have him <laughs> on your podcast and like right. lure him in to see what he'll say when his guard is down? Like, you know, hypothetically. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The other thing I kind of noticed uh, as you were talking here is it is kind of interesting to look at all the connections for the, you look at the 32 people on our tournament here and the connections to World War One, which become mm-hmm. obvious when you look at the Modern Times bracket. And we talk about T. Lawrence, obviously, being in Arabia during World War One, Winston Churchill and all the Gallipoli, mm-hmm. the Gallipoli stuff, Gandhi being in, actually would have been back in India uh, by that point, dealing with the British stuff and you know, their role in World War One. Puyi, it obviously was during his lifetime, but necessarily didn't come up in affecting his life because he was over in China at the time. But World War One then turns into World War Two, which Puyi was definitely influenced. No, by. right, right. But it could even go. So that's all the modern times people. But right. it, you could you could even go back into oh, but obviously Germany was a major player, and Cardinal Richelieu recognized the dangers yeah. of a united. Germany one day, and then Napoleon, and, and how the, France was involved with all the things. Yeah. So it, it it leads to World War One. The the only reason that Germany didn't do a World War One earlier is probably like because Cardinal Richelieu made France so powerful, and then Napoleon kept that going. Right, like, right. You know, and basically Germany wasn't able to unite till yeah, like I said, till the eighteen seventies. So. Yeah, that's it, it, you know directly responsible for World War One happening in the early 20th century and not like mid 19th century or, or even earlier. Right, and then some of these alliances were made to help keep a France in check, but then that ends up leaving with uh, Germany uh, with all the power, and then and then you can go back and just say, hey, and Ramses the Great is the father of everyone, the ancestor. right? His, his... <laughs> the ancestor of everybody, yeah. <laughs> Just to just to kind of uh, to to round out our T. E. Lawrence discussion, I wanted to read this quote. Um, it's from his book. It just kind of so T. E. Lawrence is one of those guys who's like very ideological and uh, kind of a oh I I'm seeing this thi- I see this thing in my mind's eye and I want to achieve it and so I'm going to go do it. Um, and I think this quote kind of illustrates that. He says, all men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake up in the day to find it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. Oh, interesting. I just think that's a really cool quote. Yeah, yeah. No, and as we kind of transition here into Gandhi, I was was looking at, there's a lot of parallels between Gandhi and T.E. Lawrence from uh, humble origins to world fame. Again, these were not people who were born into any kind of notoriety. They earned it through their actions. Both were big on independence movements, with uh, Lawrence trying to push for Arab independence while Gandhi pushes for Indian independence. Uh, And then what you just said right there with the strong ideological core and trying to always live their beliefs and their principles. So definitely a lot in common between these two. So. Yes, looking at Gandhi, and I've I've talked about before, probably back on our Gandhi episode, how he's a figure who fascinated me from uh, the first time I watched the film, 
simply from the sense that he's so in the cultural zeitgeist, even more so today than uh, T.E. Lawrence, because outside of that movie, you know, your average person on the street is like, who's T.E. Lawrence? And again, not that I'm saying that's right. necessarily important for our, you know, if staying power is important for being interesting and all that. But Gandhi's one who's definitely in the zeitgeist. Everyone kind of pictures this old Indian guy with glasses wearing the, the shiki or whatever it's called, the white, you know, cloth linens. But it kind of stops there. And it's like, oh, yeah, and I think, you know, I was peripherally aware. Yeah, he did some hunger strikes to protest and stuff. And that's kind of like where the general, like, just kind of baseline knowledge of Gandhi is. And then so I, when I was going through and watching all these Oscar winners for Best Picture, and I watched Gandhi, which won in, like, 81, I think, off the top of my head, maybe 82. And uh, I was like, oh, I had no idea what he was about and it's almost kind of to an embarrassing degree when you realize how important and unique he was not just for the political stuff he accomplished but for just the role in the world that he serves and as a secularist and again i don't want to offend our christian listeners but there's a definite comparison to jesus in a couple of ways in that well one he just inspired people to follow him based on his moral principles and it wasn't like some 2000 years ago where we're not sure really what exactly happened it's like no we got videos of the guy we got you know interviews with the right. guy um he i've got his autobiography right here on my desk next to me and you know you can listen to his actual not other people say he said like no gandhi wrote this book and mm -hmm. And just how he was willing to then, you know, ultimately, you know, die for his principles here. Now, he wasn't, you know, straight up a martyr. And actually, the last the last paragraph on the back of the book, now, this is not his words. This is, you know, the publisher selling it. But I did think it was a, a good summary as we get ready to dive into maybe a little more detail here. But it says, uh, Gandhi was a fascinating, complex man, a brilliant leader and guide, a seeker of truth who died for his beliefs, but had no use for martyrdom or sainthood. And, I mean... I don't have really much. I mean, yes, I'm going to go into detail here, but I, I think that does kind of yeah. just uh, uh, sum it up really well. And yeah, so I got just kind of fascinated by this guy, then did read, read his autobiography after I had watched the film. And just, I, I wish more people were fully aware of what he was all about, which I guess we we're going right. to get into right now. <laughs> so again, this could go at the end, but I want to kind of, I say start with, I've already started. But the other good quote to go with is from Einstein that kind of sums everything i just said where he's uh, einstein said generations to come will scarce believe that such a one as this ever in flesh and blood walked upon this earth and that was was that was he talking about t.e lawrence in that quote or <sighs> nope nope <laughs> lots of spies lots of british guys one gandhi <laughs> and, and then my other note here before we get into the actual like beginnings of his life and everything here is i wrote that uh is Gandhi just the most stubborn person in world history? And he's just so stubborn that he's a household name decades after his death. Honestly, it, like... All he did was just be like, no, damn it, no, damn it. He's just stubborn. Right, yeah. I, prob probably. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at least I can't think of anyone who... I can't think of any examples like that would even come close. <laughs> So yes, Gandhi was born on October 2nd, 1869. His family, they were not like super high caste. They were actually poor, but not also super low caste. Um, but his family had long been kind of merchants and civil servants working, you know, just kind of as administrators or low-level politicians. So they were well, always kind of well-educated, even if they never had a lot of money. 
his father, Kaba, was actually the prime minister, but of a local, like, tiny little state in the British in- British India. So he had kind of some status, but was still just kind of a, a lower-level administrator, but was technically the prime minister, I guess, of this little area. His mom was a... Uh, her name was <laughs> Putlebai, Puts- uh, and she was just actually an uned- uneducated village girl who uh, Kaba took as his fourth wife, not all at the same time. The first two actually had died, and then his third wife was sickly, and so he had her blessing to take on uh, a second wife at the time, which actually was his fourth wife, quite a bit younger, but he was in his 40s and hadn't had any kids yet and was basically like, I got to marry some young girl to right. get some kids. And, I mean, she was in her 20s, but... Anyway, and then, so they had four kids together with Mohandas being their fourth and youngest child. And he was, uh, in, I say interesting kid, he was just kind of, basically Gandhi was a nerd, which, I mean, shouldn't su- su- surprise uh, uh, anyone. Just some, someone I'm thinking about, like, the the whole, oh, he's he's the, the fourth and youngest child of the, like, fourth wife of this guy it, it's kind of like uh the opposite of like some of the people that we talk about in like the ancient ones who are like the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son of countless generations of eldest sons like right this right yeah, you know not only is he not born into royalty he's like yeah the the fourth son the fourth kid of the fourth wife like right right kind of like you know I don't know. This is an interesting thing about right. Talk about being born into obscurity, but, but again, that's right. where it is kind of similar to Lawrence or similar to a Spartacus or or frankly Jesus, as far as being just kind of born in relative obscurity. Sure, but yeah. So his his older sister later called him like restless as Mercury because he did like he was like he couldn't sit still, but he was also very much an introvert and shy and got like flustered if people tried to talk to him. He preferred you know books to playing games with other kids but also was only an average student and then because it's india when he was 13 he got married to kasturba who was like his wife the rest of his life and three years later they had their first child but again this is all kind of normal in india right so when he's 16 he's got a 17 year old wife and a kid and right about the time they had their kid his father died and uh actually actually let me say that um but they had their well, that, that's all true, but their first kid actually died uh, about the time, the time oh. his father died. So I, that answers. I, I was about to ask: Is that Indira, or but if it died when it well, when in, the kid was young, obviously it was not. The the famous Indira Gandhi is not his is not related. Uh, <laughs> what? Yeah, that's that's uh, she's the daughter of another person from the Gandhi movie. She's actually not. Oh. Yeah, it's okay. Like, yeah, I just, thought Indira Gandhi was like a descendant of Gandhi. Uh, double check while I'm talking, but no, I don't think so. You're probably right. I, <laughs> okay. I, I just thought because of the name. <laughs> uh, no, I think a lot of people do do uh, do think that. Um, they, and it, he did go on to have four kids with his wife. And honestly, a lot of Gandhi's story does not deal with his family. Yes, his wife is kind of you know in the movie, and his relationship with her is important, but he's kind of famously a bad father and a self-admittedly bad father. I think we talked about before where he kind of just saw the things he was doing as more important than raising his children. And so they're effectively not in the film. They're effectively not really much in his autobiography to my memory. Again, I haven't read it for 20 years, but he just kind of was okay with being a bad father in a sense, or saw that, sorry, I'm not okay with, saw that as a failing 
that he was just willing to accept because he was doing things that were more important than raising children in his mind. So after high school, he was trying to figure out, you know, what he should do. The family was poor. He kind of started going to the local college that he could afford, but then drops out of that. And it's just kind of not a layabout, but almost like just doesn't know what to do with his life. And then finally, his older brother says, well, hey, I'll, I'll help pay if you go to law school in England. And his family kind of debates that for a while because he's got a wife. And now they do have uh, an infant son that uh, survived. So his mom's like, you, you can't go to England and leave your wife and your kid behind. But he's like, yeah, yeah, but I'm going to because that sounds good. I'll go be a lawyer. So he spends his college years in London uh, going to school to become a lawyer. And he doesn't start anything like as far as what his, uh, you know, his future uh, civil disobedience stuff and all those kinds of things. But he's definitely always thinking. He's a very religious, very moral person. He's, you know, made promises to his mother to maintain his vegetarianism while in, while in England with all, you know, the... You know the the heathen English people eating the eating meat and stuff, and he's always kind of curious and just lots of debates with his fellow students and just always asking why. Just throughout his whole life, Gandhi was just never one to accept the status quo. He always was asking, "Well, why is it that way? Why is it that way?" And things that all of us, you know, even today, we just take for granted that these are the, the way things are. Gandhi was always asking, "Well, why?" And here's the way it should be. And I'm going to keep asking questions until things become the way I think they should be. And of course, you always, you always think about the, the quote attributed to him where, be the change you want to see in the world. And again, he was kind of already having those ideas in college. And although, again, painfully shy still. And he would just, he got too tongue-tied and just didn't feel comfortable talking in front of other people. So when he be, he goes back to India at the age of 22, and he's now a fully educated lawyer, but he struggled to establish any kind of practice because mm-hmm. he was literally too shy to cross-examine witnesses. Like It's like, how did you pass the bar and all this stuff? I mean, he's just super smart and really good at you know the learning and the theory side of things. He could, ed- mm-hmm. he could uh, write anything and, you know, and illustrate his points very well, but he was just too tongue-tied and shy to ever like actually like uh, say these things out loud in front of people. Right. He did finally get a job in South Africa that a distant cousin kind of hooked him up with. And the movie is almost kind of misleading here because you don't really get a good sense, I feel like, of the passage of time. I guess you do because you see him on the train at first as this young lawyer. And then when he finally comes back to India, he's more kind of the older guy. But yeah, he did spend 21 years in South Africa. Right. And that's actually where he has his first experiences of straight-up racism. Apparently in in college in in London, everyone just treated him normal. I hate to say normal. He was like, they weren't prejudiced against him in any way he ever really right. uh, had problems with. At least not like probably in the like outright explicit way that it would have that it shows up in South Africa under. Apartheid. No, right, right, right. And obviously South Africa, and we talked about that in the Mandela episodes that, you know, yeah. he's it was really openly, aggressively racist. And right, but to the point, though, when he heads down to South Africa, he goes there seeing himself as. British like he, right. he's part of the British Empire like I'm right. I'm British when you see him in the movie he I mean he has a British accent like he yes and dresses like right a, right like a regular British dude right which again was kind of the one of those things when I first saw the movie that kind of was an eye-opener it's like wait he's just wearing a suit and you know again very British and just 
Yeah. Yeah. So then, yeah, he famously gets kicked off of a out of a first class train when a passenger complains right. that this brown person is in there with him. Yeah. Which is crazy because he had a first class ticket. No. Right. Right. I, I know that this that's like the point of the scene, but it's, it's like who's I think that too. Who sold him the ticket? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, I don't think our listeners probably have to hear me say this, but racism is so stupid. Like the fact that <laughs> this dude has a first class ticket, you know, it's it's one thing if you like if you're on a plane, right, and you're trying to sit in a first class seat, and it's someone else shows up, and you're like, oh no, actually, I have a first class ticket. That's my seat. You have to go to economy because that's where the ticket that you bought. But if you're sitting in first class. And the flight attendant comes by and is like, um, actually, you have to go sit in economy because of uh, your skin color is just, it's wrong. Right. And it's not allowed. It's like, what What are you talking? Like, I spent the extra money to be able to sit in first class. No, sorry. Uh, economy for you, please. Thank you. No. Oh, but yeah, you're, you're, yeah, but your skin is brown. I'm like, so? Right. <laughs> like, so, it's so fucking dumb. Right. It's, uh, anyway. it, it is infuriating. <laughs> yeah. Racism. Yeah. Just the, the official history and film stance, anti-racism. <laughs> right uh yeah so what well, during his time in south africa is when he kind of then you see this huge shift where he goes from i'm british and fully supporting and i'm I'm basically a proud citizen of the british empire to oh wait all these white people down here are really racist now as i mentioned before too in other episodes gandhi as he starts advocating for indian equality within south africa frankly couldn't care less about how blacks were treated in south africa because they're not british he saw it as like this whole it's the whole you know indo-european they talk about like so many of these languages have these indo-european roots and then even culturally it's like that's what being aryan is is like this indo-european thing so he's basically like i'm white too (laughs) and and uh so he didn't care about the blacks but again that, that is still where he starts then implementing all of these protests and now it was interesting too is how they kind of looked at the evolution of the word so basically you're like oh well it's civil disobedience but then it's like well they didn't want to call it disobedience because that kind of has an inherent negativity to it and he's like well no this is we're not being disobedient we're like doing what we should do disobedience disobedience right. implies we're on, in, on the wrong and it's like okay yeah. well, it's, well it's passive resistance against these things it's like well no there's nothing passive about what we're doing it's aggressive. Right. It's just nonviolent. And so he basically, actually, they literally had like a contest in like the paper he was writing for to name this movement. And that's right. where the term, I've actually heard it pronounced different ways, even by Indian people, I feel like on YouTube. So I'm just going to say Satyagraha. But yeah, I've heard it, the emphasis put on different syllables there. But yes, that's where, so it actually was a listener, not listener. It was a reader of his little, you know, newspaper kind of thing that came up with the term that he did it just slightly. Anyway, so that's where you hear Gandhi always associated with this principle of satyagraha that basically is just derived from the words uh, uh, truth. And then also either I've heard it again, seen different versions of pursuit of truth, loyalty to truth, firmness in truth. But that's the kind of spirit of this. So that doesn't have like a, a direct English translation. It's a, an amalgamation of Indian words that means roughly pursuit of truth. That- yes, yes, exactly. Yes. Okay. And yeah, and then his autobiography, the subtitle is The Story of My Experiments with Truth. So mm-hmm. again, he, he was always just this intellectually curious person with these firm religious principles, always looking for what is the truth. So here's the reality of the world we live in, but what is the truth? And so, you know, the film shows the whole thing with the passes that the 
brown British citizens were required to wear, but the white British citizens were not, so they burned the passes. That'll actually happen. I couldn't actually find something that says specifically he was beaten, like he kind of was in the movie. But he does find himself in and out of jail during his time in South Africa. Because again, he's just kind of this rabble rouser that they're like they don't have time for. It's like again, they're just so firmly. It's hard to say they're anything but white supremacists when you're looking at the British in South Africa at the time here. Oh, it, yeah, it, for it, sure. yeah, and for sure. yeah, anybody who's just challenging anything other than like we, you know, they show in the movie, you know, Daniel Day Lewis wants the him to get off the sidewalk, and Gandhi says, "You'll find there's room for us all." Uh, but, but again, these protests, though, again, he's there 21 years. And so it's it's there's a few single instances you can point to. We look at the thing with the passes. But in general, it's just mm-hmm. he's an, he's an agitator, as the British would see it. But he's this cause for good as the Indians and then the world at large starts to see it. So he does actually become world famous while he's still in South Africa. And then after 21 years there. He finally, which again, well, I guess real quick. So one, his, the job that first took him there only lasted a year. And then he stayed on to fight for uh, civil rights. And then uh, also during the Boer War, Churchill would have been in South Africa at the same time as oh yeah Gandhi here. And yeah. Gandhi was a pacifist, but also then he kind of took flack for this because he, he was in principle a pacifist, but also he felt the need to support his country in times of war. But since he was a pacifist, he would do that by basically volunteering to be stretcher bearers and stuff. So he had no problem being on the battlefield, but he would get the group together right. that was you know carrying the stretchers and carrying the people back to get medical care and all those things. And he even helped establish a lot of those. Like He's like, I will start the stretcher group and you know help that way. Yeah, well, and that's that's something that you see in a in a lot of stories of like people that are like conscientious subjectors, but they still see, especially in a conflict like World War Two or something, where it's like, okay, I, I understand that like my country has this moral duty to fight a war, but like I'm personally not about it. Right. Like you see with uh, Desmond Doss from Heartbreak Heartbreak Ridge, he's, right? You know, a medic and doesn't even carry a weapon, but he Hacksaw still Ridge. goes and. <laughs> What did I say? Heartbreak. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Right. Hacksaw Ridge. Not, well, Clint Eastwood directed Heart, Hacksaw Ridge. Not the Clint Eastwood. What, it's, uh, but is he star in Heartbreak? Heartbreak Ridge is the Clint Eastwood Marine Corps movie <laughs> with uh, Mario Van... What's his name? Peoples or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mario Van Peoples and they go... Uh, uh, oh my gosh. Grenada. It's the movie where they go to Grenada. The Marines all go to Grenada anyways. I haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't like it. But hey, no, hey, this, this is a straight film. We should we should bring up movies whenever possible. <laughs> <laughs> and then also while he was in South Africa is when he first started his, his correspondence with Leo Tolstoy, the, the famed Russian author of War and Peace, who started writing a lot of pacifist stuff and even wrote a letter called uh, an open letter letter to a hindu now it wasn't written to gandhi but gandhi kind of was inspired by it to then write to tolstoy and then they began a correspondence basically i've said before tolstoy was all talk and theory but was kind of preaching pacifism and then gandhi put a lot of tolstoy's ideas into practice and then and i mentioned before the, the farm we see in the film that kind of he sets up dedicated to you know equality and pacifism and just kind of they're kind of set aside this little group and they, they he named it tolstoy farm and again i mentioned you know gandhi's obviously far from perfect with you know the, his own racist views uh towards blacks or at least just not 
making them a priority. But then also, honestly, even with, I remember from the autobiography with, with the pacifism, it's like there were times where he'd get angry and smack someone like, or you even still in the movie, he kind of forces his wife out when she refuses to clean the latrines and stuff. And it's like, so right. he, he was far from perfect and would be the first person to admit he was far from perfect. Right. Nobody's perfect. No. Right. Right. And just like, just like us, we're not perfect. Especially when, uh, when we say that Hacksaw Ridge was directed by Clint Eastwood, <laughs> was actually directed by Mel Gibson. Oh, <laughs> Man, <laughs> <laughs> which is understandable though, because it's like you know a Pacific War movie, and Clint Eastwood did do Flags of Our Fathers, yeah, and yeah. <laughs> uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. Anyway, I didn't put any money on it, but you're right. I did. I did sound pretty confident in that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. Every, everything we say comes with a big asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So yes, he finally returns to India, and he had gone back and forth some, but he finally, finally returns to India to live in 1915 at the age of 46 now. And he, he like I said, he's already world, world famous. When he comes back to India, he's greeted by a massive crowd, and they, yeah, that's kind of seen in the movie where I think it's probably two British people talking like, well, what's 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 all the hubbub about? And it's just like, oh, it's uh, that guy, like this, yeah. Gan- this Gandhi fellow ready to and actually i wrote here too it's like you know the guy john lewis would have been proud of because he wasn't afraid to get into good trouble <laughs> and yeah so while he uh famously never held office uh he did quickly join the indian national congress which was the political party that was advocating for indian independence from british rule and again over his time in south africa he kind of had a shift he had gone from proud british citizen to basically freedom fighter through his nonviolent means and so now he comes to india and becomes one of the driving forces behind the indian national congress and again there's not many single incidents it's more just about decades of putting in the work i I mean honestly i think of someone like agreta thunberg who's just being so vocal today about climate change now she's still a teenager i'd be curious to see obviously where her career takes her but it's that similar kind of spirit in that yeah, this is what I do. I just pound the table and tell people, listen. And so Gandhi just started becoming that for Indian independence. It's interesting. I didn't know, or I guess I didn't realize that the group that Gandhi was a part of that was all about Indian independence was called the Indian National Congress because the political party that Nelson Mandela was a part of that I think is actually still the party in power in South Africa today is the African National Congress. Oh, interesting. I wonder if there's if there's a, uh, I don't know, a, some sort of link there. Like maybe they, I mean, it's, it seems like it's probably a pretty common thing, but to have, you know, National Congress of wherever. But I'd have to do a little digging because it's, it's kind of so, so South Africa obviously has kind of a conflicted view of Gandhi because some recognize obviously he didn't do enough or anything for the blacks in South Africa but at the same time then Nelson Mandela cites him as an important inspiration so right and opposing you know like British colonialism right right wanting independence for everybody in the country not just the white people like there's there's definitely parallels there I don't know if there's a connection in the naming of each right right yeah yeah, I'd be curious there as well so yeah it's just kind of thing after thing of inspiring people that the way to get the British to leave our country is to not engage them with violence because that just justifies their violence against us. Right. And again, the thing that blew me away and basically brought me to tears the first time I watched the movie 
was the idea that it takes more courage not to fight. Anybody can strike out when they are scared or angry, but to have the discipline to just march at your enemy and make them the villain by your inaction. At the expense right. of, and at the possible expense of your own life. Right, right. And then, so, and then, so yeah, I mentioned, so the, the most famous one, you start, you do the research, the one that kind of sticks out and it is in the film as well, but it is, the, it is the salt march that kind of epitomizes the kinds of things Gandhi was doing over these decades of fighting mm-hmm. for Indian independence uh, from the British, where, again, I think it was only a few hundred miles that, so the idea is that Britain had all these policies in place to defend their economic interests. So they controlled basically what people were allowed to buy and not buy. And we, you know, the movie kind of deals with, you know, the homespun stuff where he starts making his own cloth because, or these, you know, places that had the dyes had gone out of business and become impoverished because all the dyes were coming from outside the country. And so basically the, the British control had completely impoverished India. One of them was a big salt tax and they weren't even allowed to, make or harvest their own salt from the sea like you actually go to jail for selling salt because it wasn't british salt that was authorized through british control i mean just horrible horrible stuff and so he starts a salt march with uh, less than 100 people and hey we're gonna march you know 250 miles whatever it was to the sea in protest of this salt tax and along the way Again, this is where the Jesus thing kind of comes to mind, where it's just like people just start following. So he starts with a few dozen followers. We're going to go march to the sea. By the time they reach the sea, the line of protesters, you know, filling the road was two miles long of people just on this march to the sea, where when they get there, they just start, well, you know, quote, making salt, just hard, you know, however you make salt from the sea, like you isolate to let the water evaporate. I don't know the exact process, but yeah. get the water in like little pools. I think you just get the water out and then as it evaporates, the salt is left behind. Right. Well, I think, you know, you guys get like little pools, put like the cloths underneath so you can lift the salt out. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I got, yeah. I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but like, right. <laughs> but yes. So, but then like he ends up in jail for it. Yeah. <laughs> Which like, and that just goes to show like how, how insane that is. Like, this is a natural resource that you can literally just walk out into the ocean and get. And the British are like, no, it's illegal. You can't have it. Right, it's like, right. It's, like, why not? Right. So so just like in South Africa, actually more so, he spends a lot more time uh, in jail. I don't know if I actually have a timeline, but he was in and out of prison as this agitator. Uh, again, so much like in Nelson Mandela later, where he gets, you know, thrown in prison for being in, in uh, Martin Luther King Jr. spent time in jail. So like... The powers in charge do not like it when people challenge their authority and those agitators get incarcerated so that they do not, quote, corrupt the the people and, and point out that they're being oppressed. Obviously, they know they're being oppressed. But anyway, so that's where a lot of his writing does. I think he wrote his autobiography while he was in prison and just uh, he just spent time in and out of jail, always advocating for what he thought was right. Honestly, too, I almost feel like if he had appeared during Victorian England when they had kind of first taken control of India, I don't think he's successful. I, I think you needed the modern media of radio and not really TV. There was video was available, but you know newsreels and kind of thing. I, I think you needed that to help put the spotlight on British-controlled India that finally got to the point that 
they were so painted as the bad guy that it was no longer in their interest to stay. And as World War II ended, they kind of just saw the writing on the wall that, okay, we're going to have to leave. We're going to have to turn over control. So they do kind of start help helping a little bit in the process of transitioning to independence. But then, of course, as India starts looking at what life post-Britain control is going to look like, the Muslims within the country are like, okay, so yes, we're all for democracy too, but we are the religious minority and are not interested in being in a country that is just controlled 100% at the you know national level by all the Hindus. So mm-hmm. we think we should have a separate country for us when we when the British leave. And Gandhi, this is where he split with a lot of his friends and advisors and stuff because they all saw that as a rational thing. It sounds rational as we're saying it. And Gandhi was just like, no, we're all Indian. Separating into different countries based on religion is just ridiculous. Like he just saw us, like we're, it's the whole we're all brothers thing. And again, he had nothing against Christians too. He was actually a big fan of Jesus when, you know, reading his teachings mm-hmm. and things. And just Gandhi was beside himself that anybody would want to divide India and fought fiercely for a united India. And then as these debates are going on, it erupts into massive violence of the Muslims versus the Hindus. And and, and both sides are guilty of horrible things during this time. And then it got so bad, and this is in the film, but this actually happened, that Gandhi goes on one of his, wasn't his first, but goes on a hunger strike. And basically... It worked for a time that he was so beloved by both the Hindus and the Muslims as this freedom fighter for independence from the British that basically everyone stops fighting because their Mahatma, again, his name, his given name is Mohandas, but he had been given the name Mahatma, meaning like great soul, that this person was basically willing to starve himself to death to stop everyone from fighting. And again, it worked for a time. And ultimately in 1948, Gandhi is assassinated by a, a Hindu national because, again, I think the Hindus wanted the Muslims out too. And so, and there was even, I used to watch the video at the time with one of these, one of the conspirators, it was actually the brother of the assassin. And he was basically saying, like, yeah, I don't even really regret it. Like, he was not helping at that point. Like, yeah, he had his role. And so, you could, and even Gandhi himself kind of knew he was at risk of an assassin's bullet and just kind of, he, he had even contemplated, like, maybe I don't have a role to play anymore. And that independence, yes, but like I might not have a role going forward. And I just don't see things the way apparently everyone else sees them. And so, yeah, he was he was assassinated. He died January 30th, 1948 at the age of 78. Uh, and they do kind of like the site where he was killed and the site where his body was cremated, they are kind of set up as not holy sites per se, but definitely sacred sites to India today. Sure. He's yeah. considered the father of India, right? Very much a George Washington type for the United States. That is that is Gandhi. Like he get, he got their independence, and he you know he's on their currency and all these kinds of things. So su- super important guy, kind of unique in world history where he su- again you successfully expel the greatest empire in the world, biggest in world history by geography and even percentage of population i think it's like a quarter of the world's population was like under british control at its height and uh the sun never set on the british empire because the sun was always over something controlled by the british and yeah. and you get them to leave your country 
through sheer stubbornness. <laughs> you just right. decide, no, <laughs> no, yeah. we're not, we're not gonna do this. But you have to right. do this. Like that's how we, that's how society works. It's like, yeah, we're just not gonna participate in your society until you leave. Go away, right. go away yeah. now, please. And it worked because there's like so many more of us in our view. You can't like make us do right, that, right? So. And, he, and he would, yeah, he would talk about basically like the whole reason because the British took control in like the 1840s, I think, off the top of my head. And uh, mm-hmm. and basically, he would kind of say it's like they only could ever take control because on some level we cooperated with them. So we just have to stop cooperating, and then they will have to leave. And that's exactly what happened. And right. obviously, he has he have huge inspiration for Martin Luther King Jr. Without Gandhi, there is no Martin Luther King Jr. doing what he was able to do. Because I just don't think he would have, even if he believed those same things, I think you needed a Gandhi to kind of come through first to show how possible it was. And that when you get into the civil rights movement in the United States and the issues with the South there and all these nonviolent protests inspired by Dr. King, I, I just don't see how they happen without Gandhi going through first. Yeah. And yeah, it just continues to be an inspiration to this day yeah i am a huge fan of uh what he was able to accomplish and i think he does kind of stand out as unique as i guess we decide which way to vote here i guess i first have to ask you if i've convinced you if we need to go to the tiebreaker or not (laughs) (laughs) uh well uh, wait so are you saying that you're for sure voting for gandhi well so what's okay i'm kind of both ways here so what's funny is before we kind of got down to this final thing i even kind of thought as we entered the sweet 16 i was like so I'm at least, at the very least, going to hold over, Logan, the threat of me voting all my points for Gandhi the whole time. Almost like psychological warfare. So strategically, you'll be holding back points the whole time. And then we get to the end and I just vote for T. Lawrence, too. Uh, <laughs> um, so because you could argue, I think it's without doubt. Gandhi is more important historically than T.E. Lawrence. Yes. But I could yes. understand the argument of T.E. Lawrence being more interesting. And right. I did and I did kind of, you know, you know, tongue in cheek say or was always thinking like, I'll just vote for T.E. Lawrence to screw with uh, Logan as, as being more interesting. But but no, I, I do think I got I gotta go vote Gandhi is more interesting too. I, I do think he is more interesting. To me, I agree Gandhi is more important. He obviously had a bigger impact on the world than T.E. Lawrence did. But to me, I still think T.E. Lawrence is more interesting just because of kind of the twisty, turny life that he has. You know, he starts off like, you know, just going on a 2,000 mile bike ride at the age, you know, at the age of like 20 or whatever it was, 19 or 20. Like for, for a lot of people, doing something like that would be like the highlight of their life. And that was just like the least interesting thing that he did. And then he's, you know, an archaeologist, and then he's a spy, and then he's, you know, a military spy, and he's fighting all these battles. Just, I think he has a more interesting story, at least to me, than Gandhi does, even though Gandhi, I do believe, is more important. T. Lawrence does stand out on this list as, he's the only one you could argue is, quote, just a guy. Like, everyone else is a ruler, or, again, a vastly, uh, a vastly inspirational figure. A wider. Oh, you're right. War- you're right. Wyatt Earp would be the comparison, maybe, of the other one who's just just a guy. That's that's probably a good right. call or a good comparison. And I it makes it does make me wonder how many more of those types of stories we're just unaware of, and that lots of these people do exist that have these crazy biographies. And mm-hmm. if we dug a little harder, we could probably come up with some. I'm sure some have biographies. I'm sure there's other movies that are out there people could could suggest to us. 
maybe even ones we've already watched that just kind of skipped our minds. But I, I just feel like there's, there's probably a lot. <laughs> there's not a lot of T. Lawrence's, but I'm saying there's just a lot of people who have led crazy lives with similar kinds of diversities, whereas I just don't see a lot of people who can match uh, Gandhi's CV. And, and there's so many things we didn't get into with, you know, him doing, you know, writing about diet things and oh when you're fasting make sure to allow yourself at least some juice or some watered down orange juice and stuff or you'll be way sicker mm-hmm. after a week and of course you also did we also didn't touch on C, uh, t lawrence's sexuality which again while not interesting by today's standards for the time right was probably very significant as far as making his life yeah, interesting i i kind of like purposely not not avoided it but n- number one i don't i don't know i don't think that that makes anyone more or less interesting no, no, no. I think it does just for the time but, period in which he lived when you had to keep well, it a secret. Yeah, well, and and a lot of it is, like, so because of the way that, you know, because of just general cultural attitudes towards homosexuality or anything other than being a cisgendered straight person at the time. Right. You know, just so so little is known about what actually his no, sexuality right. was. Yeah, I I don't think that that makes someone any more or less interesting. Maybe, you know, maybe if there was like more concrete evidence or, or something, you know, more substantial, but like historians and, you know, biographers of T.E. Lawrence, even today, don't all agree on, oh, he was gay or he was bi or, you know, he was sexually assaulted at some point during his time in Arabia. Or, no, it wasn't sexual assault. It was actually a consensual relationship. Or There's just is so much uh, fogginess that I didn't really uh, want to go into, I guess. No, and that's fair. Yeah, and uh, the flip side of that with... Uh, so Gandhi was very ascetic, obviously with the simple simple diet and simple clothing, but he also then became uh, abstinent later in life. And basically, I think just because he had this, this strong religious feelings, he kind of felt guilty about his sexual desires and just kind of saw it as a another ascetic thing to abstain from. And he, like, he would wrote about like how basically being a horny teenager I mean, you, his autobiography just talks about him dealing with being a horny teenager and because he's uh, he, you're married at 13 but then you're at school just thinking like i got a wife at home i got a wife at home <laughs> like it's just like, <laughs> it's like uh, anyway yeah so th- those th- those things obviously do there are definitely shades of interesting things with uh when you look at those uh aspects of people's lives i guess but yes they're not they're not accomplishments uh by any means okay so so it's a split but unless Logan chooses to vote less than two or two or less, right. we're kind of done here. <laughs> so yeah. I was going to say you could vote. The points are gone after this after this matchup. So you could be like, you could vote 100 or you could actually just kind of like slap me by voting three. <laughs> no, 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 no. So that, that's, that's, I was, gonna, I was just going to say like, obviously this is going to go to a vote. And yeah, it would be like really insulting for me to just vote three. And be like, <laughs> that's all that I care about. Gavi is three points. And it'd still be like. No, I would. I mean, we're we don't even have to do the count because I'm gonna just spend a hundred points to move T.E. Loris to the next round. Okay. Well, so officially on Paper Hill, we'll make it a hundred to two. Just uh Okay. Just for the official count. Just to just to zero it out. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that that does it there, and uh, T.E. Lawrence does advance to the Elite Eight, where he will face Oshaka the Great. So, oh, there you go. So you beat Gandhi, but then you just get another Indian for for the matchup there. I know. <laughs> and someone who is also really has a just a crazy, just a crazy interesting story. I, honestly, like, 
all of these matchups are going to be pretty close, I think. Especially with the uh, with the added uh, aspect of having Joe in there too, bringing a fresh perspective. Like it would be close, even if it was just the two of us discussing all these people again. But having Joe come in with the you know a, a new take potentially on some of these guys is going to be it's going to be a good rest of the tournament. So here, let's uh, let's go to the final the final eight matchups. here. So we'll go to all the matchups. So. Because we, we, we reshuffled here. So we've had the four regions of eight each. We now have two advancing out of each region. But instead of matching up T. Lawrence with Puyi, we're actually reshuffling just to kind of make it more fair. So in case the two people who should you know ultimately make right. the championship, they could, in theory, now come from the same region. Right. right. So up, up until this point, all the matchups have been in the same region. Right. Um, so well, the same general time period. But with this reshuffle, now we're going to have modern against ancient medieval on your ass versus enlightened industrialists like they're getting shuffled right um, so right the different time periods are now facing off right so the four matchups in the elite eight and we'll start off here in a couple of weeks with cleopatra versus puyi then genghis khan versus elizabeth the first t.e lawrence versus a shock of the great and then we'll end the elite eight with napoleon versus empress matilda and we won't have to do the tiebreaker point thing anymore because we will be bringing on Joe Hubner, who did kind of make a cameo briefly when we were doing Julius Caesar versus Ramses the Great. And so we'll have a, a three people voting, so there won't won't be any ties possible in that round. Who, unlike Rich and I, is an actual history teacher. Oh, right, right. <laughs> He's actually a professional uh, and has has the degree. We're just fanboys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's curious to see uh, Joe's perspective, and uh, we'll kind of just do that. And we got some other things planned for the final four in the championship that we'll get to as we get to that point. The elite eight will be the bios are kind of done now. Uh, it'll just kind of be other things uh, Joe brings up that we hadn't thought of. Uh, anything else we can kind of maybe bring to the table that we didn't mention the as we went through the first time, and we'll just kind of hash that out. It'll be maybe more similar to the first round. It'll just be kind of a longer, more in-depth conversation uh, as we kind of weigh who is more interesting and as we kind of whittle this down to who the most interesting person in history is, according to History and Film. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you later. See ya. See ya.